0: Good evening, and welcome to the Lockdown Winnipeg Jets podcast, part of the Lockdown Podcast Network, your team every day. I'm your host, Harrison Lee, an ever Winnipeg Jets fan and an online blogger. You can find me at HLLivingLoco on Twitter, and follow our podcast Twitter handle at LO underscore Winnipeg Jets. If you're a first-time listener, be sure to subscribe on your favorite platform of choice, whether it's Megaphone, Spotify, Apple, or Google. Subscribing is free, and you get to stay up to date on the latest and greatest in Winnipeg Jets news. Your support is greatly appreciated, and we thank you for listening. For tonight's episode, we're going to be starting a quick new series called The 12 Days of Christmas, where we talk about one thing that the Jets have given us that we are wonderfully thankful for. In addition, we'll also be covering a little bit about the Jets' last game against the Anaheim Ducks. Just so you know, I actually do not plan to sing The 12 Days of Christmas. Um, I will be talking that one out, so if you wanted to hear my dulcet tones, I very much apologize. I am not much of a singer, and you'll probably be thankful that I don't serenade you. On this first day of Christmas, I do want to say thanks to the Jets for giving us many years of Dustin Bufflin. If you're not overly familiar with Dustin Bufflin, he was probably the face of the franchise for the past, I don't know, six, seven years maybe? Bufflin is kind of unique in a lot of ways, but I think the most distinctive manner is that he is a very different kind of defenseman than what you're used to. Many coaches have tried to figure out the best way to deploy him, um, and some guys have tried him as a winger, which didn't really work all that well. I think that they thought that he had a big, boxy, bulky frame that would fit into uh, a power forward role, but that really wasn't where Bufflin excelled. Dustin kind of has an abnormally, I guess, physical presence, um, and he's got a very wide a broad frame that's more akin to something like Alexander Ovechkin, and he's got a lot of height and a lot of strength, which you might imagine would make for a good power forward, especially on like a flanking side to a a center of some sort. What I don't think Bufflin's coaching staff's accounted for is the fact that he just doesn't like playing as a forward. He tends to enjoy playing from the back end more than anything. You can kind of tell that comfort level is there, too, because when he was at forward, he really wasn't all that effective. Bufflin was always somebody who tended to get better results when he had a lot more space to work with and could kind of get a deep, booming shot from distance uh, down into the center channel. For a big guy, he is pretty fast, but he's definitely not as fast as some of the NHL's paceier wings, and I feel like, from the defensive standpoint, it actually made more sense to have him on the back end. He tends to like to activate and pinch deep, and then he can do so with a lot more added room at the top of the zone. When given enough appropriate space to work with, Dustin Bufflin is truly one of the most terrifying offensive forces in the NHL. No one truly plays like he does, and I don't know that anyone ever will ever again. Um, Bufflin is one of the most singular players I've ever seen, and his play style is something completely unique to his build, to his personality, and to his own preferences. It also doesn't hurt that he's one of the most powerful skaters that I've ever seen, and I don't just mean in a skating stride, I mean everything about him is is one of the most powerful physical players I've ever seen in any sport, really. Again, I think the closest comparison that I could think of is if Ovechkin played as a physical defenseman, I would probably align him closer to Bufflin's playstyle. But even then, that's not quite enough. I think Bufflin has a lot more finesse than people realize because, again, he's a different kind of defenseman. He's a very fluid skater. He's got great stick handling. He has very sharp offensive zone instincts, He's a completely unique player, and the way that he uses his frame to get into small gaps and, and sort of force his way into the zone, no one else can really do that kind of stuff. Most people who are not Jets fans probably remember him from essentially grabbing two players by the scruff of the neck and kind of dragging them out of scrums every time they, uh, every time there's some kind of a, a meetup along the walls or a fight. Bufflin certainly enjoys mixing it up, and he definitely has had a fair share of his own fights in his career. Uh, but he's kind of a quiet guy when you actually listen to him talk. He'll definitely yell at, you know, opposing players on the ice, but when you you listen to him kind of give interviews, he kind of strikes me as somebody who's a bit more introverted and private. It's kind of amusing to contrast his play on the ice with how he, you know, addresses the media and and talks to the public, Um, because he's a very loud player on the ice. Anytime he steps on, you immediately can tell a difference in the opponents. They start to kind of watch him a little bit more, they have to mark him, and I think they genuinely fear his slap shot. He's just an overwhelming dominating presence on the ice, and I feel like his absence this year from the Jets has been especially noticeable. We don't exactly have that many right-handed defensemen to begin with, but missing Bufflin has kind of left this cavernous void just... Uh, I don't know, it's not been as much fun to watch. I feel like any time Bufflin was around, the team was a lot more dynamic and exciting, especially on the power play. Without him, there's just a little bit of a spark that's been missing, especially on the defensive side of things. If you're a fan of really big hits, you're also going to be missing out on those too. Bufflin could absolutely deck some guys and not really think twice about it. He just has that natural frame where he can kind of crush you without even having to try. I sometimes wonder if he's ever going to play in the NHL again because he's still sitting on the sidelines. I don't think he's actually been training or practicing. Um, And the longer that this arbitration case goes on, I kind of wonder if he starts thinking about retirement. He's had a lot of health issues in recent times. Um, a couple of injuries have sidelined him for extended periods, and now that he's not actively playing or training, I I just don't know what he's really going to be able to do to get back into game shape. You know, is he gonna is he gonna be able to adapt back to the NHL lifestyle really quickly? Is he doing off season skating? Doesn't sound like it from the general gist of things. For me, that's a real shame because Bufflin's one of the most fun and dynamic players that I've ever gotten the privilege to see. Um, there's just no one, there really is no one like him, and I feel like there never will be again. Uh, the way that he plays and the way that the NHL is moving, guys like him just don't have, uh, they aren't really drafted anymore. Um, larger players, a lot of them and traditionally were thought to be really physical, really powerful forwards. But as the game transitions to a more speedy, dynamic sort of style, I feel like the big guys don't really have the same offensive upside that Bufflin did. And he's got a really funny draft story. When he was taken by the Chicago Blackhawks, I think the GM basically said, yeah, there's no way this guy's ever going to make the NHL. Um, He was taken, I believe, with the last pick of the draft in the year that he was taken, and the Blackhawks really didn't think that he was going to amount to anything. But they still took a chance, and Bufflin has proved every doubter wrong since then. In Dustin's prime, he was probably one of the top 20 defensemen in the NHL, and I think in terms of watchability and in terms of uh, name brand recognition, Buffalo was easily one of the most recognizable faces in the the NHL. If you didn't know him, you definitely knew his highlight videos, because he always had something kind of going on around him. On a personal level, I'm just going to miss the dude. I always enjoyed watching him, and I don't think that he's ever going to play for the Jets again. Whatever happens with this case, whatever happens with his career it's just going to be, I think this is going to be the end of the road either way. And you know what? If that's the end of his career, I'm really glad that I got to see at least part of it. Um, there's just, he really is a special kind of player, and he meant so much to this franchise for so many years. It does bug me a bit that both Bufflin and Enstrom are now departing on, on seemingly bad terms with the team, and I kind of I kind of worry about that. I don't want to speculate on what's going on behind the scenes, but this sort of drama and chaos is really not a, a great sign for the organization. There have been rumors that some of the players don't see eye to eye, which is normal. You get that a lot in, in any professional sport. Um, and you also get different disagreements between coaching staffs and management teams. I just don't like to see such public displays of, of frustration from players departing the team um, because it kind of reflects poorly on the franchise and the management system the last thing you want to get is a reputation for either throwing your guys under the bus or or just having mismanagement behind the scenes. I'm not sure how this Bufflin case is going to resolve. I'm sure there's going to be some kind of settlement that occurs behind closed doors. Either way, not thrilled with the outcome, and I don't like that this is the way that Bufflin's going to leave his legacy with this franchise. I feel that he contributed so much, and I hope that people always remember the great stuff that he gave us, especially the dynamic action, the physicality, and the wonderful goals. I wish him all the best in his future endeavors and hope that I get to see him again in the NHL soon. Speaking of watching actual NHL action, we'll be recapping Jets vs. Ducks from last night in just a moment. Welcome back. Hope you're doing well and enjoying the show so far. Thanks for sticking around. Last night, Winnipeg's old nemesis Anaheim paid a visit to the Jets and uh, wanted to settle the score, I suppose. Not sure if uh, Corey Perry phoned ex-teammate Ryan Getzlaff and told him to fight, but it looks like the Ducks were a little bit feistier than usual. Anaheim's always a bit of a chippier opponent, and in general, I don't really care for the team. I feel like they've always had sort of a reputation for being dirty, and it's because... Sometimes, between the whistles, they do some stuff that's less than stellar. Of all of the most surprising things, though, I did not really expect Ryan Getzlaff to drop the gloves with uh, Nikolai Ehlers. Ryan has, like, a solid, I don't know, 50 pounds on Ehlers and and a couple of inches in height, and Ryan also has, like, a huge wingspan, and he's certainly not afraid to mix it up in a bit of fisticuffs, uh, which is not really great for Ehlers because Nick is definitely not an enforcer. Um, He's a speedy winger, kind of needs his hands to shoot, and getting into a fight... Um, jeopardizes all of those things, really. Don't love to see it, I enjoy the, and appreciate the passion from Ehlers, but I definitely don't want him injuring himself in Widowman's to a pretty meaningless fight. Thankfully, no harm, no foul, could have been a lot worse, um, and Ehlers missing off the team was already bad enough. Anytime he's off the ice, bad things tend to happen to the Jets. I know Winnipeg is defensively a bit more vulnerable than usual, but last night was especially bad when they were trying to make uh, even simple zone clearances. Winnipeg has had issues all season long just doing things like winning battles along the boards, making passes that allow them to spring breakouts. Making any kind of defensive zone exit this season has been something of a struggle for the Jets. It kind of seems like Anaheim took advantage of that because Winnipeg just could not get the puck out of the zone even when the clearance opportunity was right there in front of them. I feel like the defensive structure of this team just doesn't seem to work right, Um, and Winnipeg doesn't seem to have a whole lot of chemistry when they need to make his own exit if one route along one side was sealed off they would kind of throw it back along the other side but the defender who was supposed to be there and then the link up forward neither of them were really in position and it just kind of kept going back and forth and back and forth and anaheim would create some offensive opportunities off those chances it's not like either team was especially dangerous throughout most of the game but all of these failed zone clearances started to add up really quickly Against a team with higher and elite scoring talent, I feel like the Jets would have been punished pretty harshly for their defensive efforts. I mean, they have been in the past, and I think the Dallas Stars kind of exploited that um, during their matchup on the road a couple of weeks ago. But even still, just not great to see against a, a team that's as weak as the Ducks are. Thankfully, Winnipeg does have enough scoring talent to usually paper over their issues, and that was kind of put on display when the Jets had a 3-on-2 rush, um, and Perot, Kyle Connor, and Mark Scheifele connected for a very nice given goal goal. Perot made a nice little slick feed to uh, Kyle Connor down the center channel, and then Kyle just sort of redirected it to Shifley. Shifley had basically an empty net to shoot at. Uh, one nothing Jets, pretty nice goal. Like it all around. Unfortunately, Winnipeg got sloppy again right after the goal, and then 20 seconds later, here comes Jakob Silverberg to redirect something of a, a weird chip shot past Hellebuck. It went in on a uh, a pretty ridiculous shooting angle. I mean, I, I don't actually know how Silverberg even elevated the puck enough to get it over Hellebuck's shoulder. I mean, it's it's really hard to do what he did, especially from what looked like his backhand. Again, though, another failed zone clearance and uh, some poor and sloppy defensive coverage ultimately led to the goal against. And Winnipeg, you know, they've had a habit of doing that this season. It's, again, it's not surprising. I'm not shocked. Um, but it is a little bit frustrating that there just isn't enough support for the defensemen from the forwards. Whatever zone schemes the Jets are using just doesn't really seem to be working, and I feel like guys don't really have a great feeling of whose assignment is supposed to be whose, especially when there's a lot of overlapping. The first period ended 1-1, and then the Jets moved on to the second frame, where, again, they were still pretty decent. I mean, the Jets generally had the run of play throughout most of the game, even though they weren't really creating that many high-danger scoring opportunities. Generally speaking, the Jets kind of had to shoot from multiple areas of the ice, um, and nothing all that dangerous. I think Gibson had a, a generally easier body of work, but Winnipeg still did create around, I don't know, 35 shots, maybe 34. I'm not fond of shots from the point or anything that I view as more empty calorie filler shots, but... You never know. The Ducks are defensively susceptible much like the Jets are, so Winnipeg can't exploit those matchup issues sometimes. In one of those rare matchup wins, Adam Lowry actually managed to collect a nice goal for himself. Um, he's been a bit snake bitten this season. It was only his third goal of the year, even though he's been putting some really dangerous breakaways and shooting attempts against. I feel like it's probably been a bit frustrating for him because he's always the one in the right position, but he just doesn't have the finishing or hands to, to usually capitalize like he used to. I think like 99% of that is just really bad luck, but he's also not like Kyle Connor or Mark Shifley who have some phenomenal shooting mechanics and techniques. I think he's a pretty ordinary shooter, generally speaking. When he does score, it's a nice benefit more than anything. Um, you kind of want him for a shutdown role and his ability to drive the forecheck, but you aren't really expecting that many goals for points. The goal was at the tail end of the second period, so Winnipeg walked into the third with a 2-1 lead, um, a lead that they unfortunately weren't really able to hold. The Ducks created some chaos around Hellebuck off of a a busted sequence, and I think somebody went into the net. One of the Jets kind of took Hellebuck off of his feet. The puck is squirting around by the edge of one of the posts, and here comes Devin Shore to just tuck it in. I think the shot was initially taken by Troy Terry, um, and then Shore found it. It was an empty net. He just tucked it in, and uh, it was a pretty rough goal. I mean, it's one of those things where... Again, Winnipeg's inability to clear the zone is is kind of biting them, but, you know... What can you do at this point? Barring Winnipeg making some kind of philosophical change or systems change, they're just going to keep giving these goals up every so often. Evidently, the NHL officials were in the giving spirit again, but this time they did it in favor of Winnipeg. Um, Towards the end of the third period, Winnipeg got a nice power play, and Mark Scheifele finally made it count. I wouldn't really say that the ice was particularly tilted either way, but the Jets generally, again, had the run of play. So this goal was warranted. It It was totally deserved. After the sting of the OT lost against Dallas, where the incorrect penalty was assessed to Winnipeg, I felt like this was at least a little bit more justified. Winnipeg was able to hold on, even though Hellebuck had a lot of late-period tests to essentially keep the Jets in the game. I, again, I don't think that the Ducks were really all that dangerous overall, but when they did create high-danger opportunities, there was a ton of net-front chaos going on. Winnipeg did enough to survive, took the two points, defeated the Ducks, I'm satisfied. Speaking of things that are satisfying, on our final segment of the show in just a minute, we'll be talking about some of my favorite jersey styles. Thanks for hanging around. If you haven't done so already, please make sure to follow us on Spotify, Apple, Google, or the Megaphone app. And make sure to follow me on Twitter at LivingLoco and at LO underscore Winnipeg Jets for the podcast. If you'd like to be featured on any future podcasts, please feel free to shoot me a message at either account and I'll take a look at getting you on the show. I always enjoy local, on-the-ground perspectives from Jets fans, so I'd love to hear yours. Unless, of course, you just want to tell me Patrick Lane sucks, because then you're totally banned from ever getting on the show. Kidding, only slightly and now for the main attraction some of the best jersey styles in hockey regardless of whether it's the nhl ahl or some other league first on our list is one from a couple of years ago i believe when it was still the lake erie monsters and not the cleveland monsters in 2014 uh, cleveland hosted a neon knight and the neon knight is actually a pretty sharp style it's a base black jersey um, with a lot of neon trim that's sort of done in like an 80s style. If you've never seen it, be sure to Google the uh, Neon Jersey Knight from the Lake Erie Monsters. It's a really sharp style, one of my favorites. Because it's so cool, and it was only worn for one game, it's unfortunately extremely difficult to find one that's available. I don't know that I've actually ever seen like a replica for sale, for instance. I've only ever seen a few game warrants that were around, and most of them were pretty expensive. If you can find one, it's one of the sharpest jersey styles you'll ever see, and I think you'll love the Lake Erie Monsters logo, that's also done in like a neon lighting style. It's a very sharp jersey, one of my favorite styles, and one that I'd love to own one day. On a related AHL note, one of my other personal favorite minor league styles is the Houston Arrows Away jersey from I believe the 2012 season. It was one of the last years that the Arrows were in existence, and this style is essentially a solid green Minnesota Wild jersey. But the shoulders have been redone with some silver trim and then part of it is actually stitched to look like a bomber of some sort. It has like a 40s, 50s Americana vintage thing going on and I really like the style. It's also really hard to find. There aren't that many of them in existence. I've only seen a handful of them available either on sale or in replica or game worn form. Um, because the jerseys just didn't get circulated very much, um, any that are out there are pretty hard to locate. But if you can find one, it's one of the coolest styles you'll ever see. This next one actually comes from the ECHL from another defunct franchise, the Las Vegas Wranglers. Um, the Wranglers folded several years ago, but they did have some really funny specialty night jerseys. One of them was like a, a Girl Scouts jersey that I... or either Girl Scouts or Boy Scouts. One of those two. It's a hideous looking thing. It's like one of those sublimated jerseys that's, that's styled to look like somebody's uniform. Um, but it's a, it's a really cool style. It is pretty rare. I've seen maybe one or two surface over the past five or six years. A pretty uncommon style, but if you can find it, also a really funny one. It's a very funny conversation piece, that's for sure. From the major junior leagues, we did have a, a really interesting one from the Niagara Ice Dogs. I call this one the Robo-Dog. Um, the Ice Dogs had a, a logo that I think was done after Don Cherry's dog. But this style was a Nike jersey, and the logo itself kind of looked like a Transformer from the 80s. Really cool jersey, really sharp. The home, I believe, it was a base black jersey with, like, red trim. Really sharp. And again, not terribly common, but definitely easier to find than some of the other ones I talked about earlier. From Winnipeg's own Jersey Vaults, one of the best styles that they've ever done uh, was actually from the Manitoba Moose. The Moose had this firefighter specialty night jersey that if you've never seen it, it's probably one of the the nicest, sharpest first responder honor jerseys that you'll find. Uh, The style is beautiful. It's extremely hard to get. Um, I've never actually been able to get my hands on one myself, but I'm sure they're definitely out there somewhere. If I recall correctly, they were auctioned off for charity when they were sold, and I don't really recall if any of the blank ones made it out to the public. I know that they are out. there are a few of them that are out there, but I haven't really seen them. One that you for sure can definitely get your hands on is the Heritage Away Classic jersey from the Jets from last season which stands as one of my favorite regular season jerseys of all time. I'm not sure why Winnipeg just hasn't made this a full-time jersey, whether it's an alternate or just a home jersey in general, but it's probably one of the best styles they've ever put out. I definitely like it more than the navy one that they released this year. Both are sharp in their own right, but the white one that they had last year was definitely among the best. I really wish they had worn it more for than, like, three games, because I feel like that jersey had good luck, and it was a nice style. Very pleasing to the eye, a nice tribute to the old franchises, just a beautiful jersey design all around. I definitely did not like the shift to the aviators though. Those ones just aren't all that appealing to me and I feel like the the white version of the heritage classic from last year is far superior. On a related note to throwback jerseys, I have to give a shout out to the Washington Capitals third jersey which has the white shoulders with a solid red main body. Living around DC of course you see these ones worn a lot by fans but it's just one of the sharpest jersey styles period. I definitely think it's a a top 10 for me I love it enough that I actually had to get one for myself because it's just such a sharp style, and especially with the blue font on the back, it's just a perfect jersey design and a great tribute to the early Caps history. Speaking of early jersey history, I have to say that the Vancouver Flying Skates is right up there. If you've never seen the 80s throwbacks that have the like orange and yellow trim, those ones are among Vancouver's best jerseys that they've ever worn. Much like the Heritage Night ones, they just need to be made the main home jerseys because they're just so sharp, so distinctive, and so beautiful. They have a very vintage retro vibe going on, and I feel like Vancouver is making a mistake in not wearing it more often. I know that they probably want to keep their branding going with the current, you know, green and, and blue jerseys that they wear as their main home jersey, but the flying skate style, that's probably one of the best that they have. Tell me, what are your favorite jersey styles? I'd love to know what you think, so make sure you hit me up at Twitter with your jersey suggestions and comments. Maybe I'll even talk about it on our next podcast. With that, thanks for listening, and have a great one. Go Jets Go!